Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, welcome to the United States Study Center online webinar series. Uh, my name is Ashley Townsend, and I'm Director of Foreign Policy and Defense at the United States Study Center. And it's my pleasure to welcome you all here this morning or this evening for those of us joining from across the pond um, for a session on empowering American allies and partners uh, in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, before I introduce our speakers and the topic today, uh, let me just uh, first acknowledge the traditional owners of Australia. Uh, the University of Sydney stands on the land of the Gadigal people of the Aurora Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. I further acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which you are all located today, and also pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and future. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm delighted today to be joined not only by two excellent thinkers and scholars and practitioners on um, regional security, regional foreign policy and defense policy, uh, but more importantly, <coughs> two good friends of mine and two good friends um, of Australia, Ambassador Jane Hardy, who's our Consul General in Hawaii, um, and Mr. Abraham Denmark, who is the author of the book that we'll be launching today and also um, Director of excuse me, Director of the Asia Program at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars and a Senior Fellow at the Kissinger's Institute um, on China and the United States. Um, the book, and I believe we have a slide uh, of it uh, to show right now, the book that we're discussing today um, has been a work that Abe has put um, much of the last five years into outside of his time in government um, and is really one of the most insightful, I think, studies not just on regional uh, security dynamics and the emerging strategic order in the Indo-Pacific, but one that makes a very sharp um, and very comprehensive policy argument for the way that the United States needs to evolve its relationship with regional allies and partners in order to empower them to collectively work towards building, maintaining and shaping um, a liberal international order, a liberal regional order in the Indo-Pacific. Abe is not just uh, a, a scholar of these issues, but he previously served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for East Asia during the Obama administration, and has also held multiple positions at the National Bureau of Asian Research, the Center for a New American Security, and the US intelligence community. We're joined this morning um, alongside Abe uh, by Ambassador Jane Hardy, who, as I said at the start, is our Consul General in the Australian uh, Consulate General in Honolulu. She's previously served as Assistant Secretary for Arms Control and Counterproliferation in the International Security Division of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. And prior to this, Ambassador Hardy has served um, as Australia's Ambassador to Spain, Andorra, Equatorial Guinea, and also held a number of other positions in DFAT and the Australian Government. Abe, Jane, thanks very much for, for joining me here today. Um, I'd like to turn first uh, over to Abe to give us um, an overview of his book, um, as well as the arguments about empowering US allies and partners in the Indo-Pacific. And while he's doing that, ladies and gentlemen, um, our chat will be open and our moderators will be there to receive your questions and, and pass them over to me. So please feel free to start your question generation process now. Um, after Abe's uh, given us um, the arguments of his book, um, I'll be moderating a discussion with Jane and Abe, and then we'll be bringing your questions into it so that we can focus this session on the topics and issues that you want to talk about. Um, Abe, thanks again. Congratulations on the book. And uh, uh, please give us um, 
your take on, on its analysis and, and core arguments. Well, thank you so much, Ashley. Thank you, Ambassador Hardy, uh, for having me uh, tonight or this morning, depending on where you are. Um, I'm very pleased to be here, really honored to be featured with you guys. Um, as you said, Ashley, this was a book long in the making, uh, took a two-year pause to serve in the Pentagon. Uh, it was also delayed by uh, having children. Um, so if you hear uh, some screaming in the background, it is the also the cause of why it took so long for this book to come out. Uh, but hopefully things will be uh, copacetic for an easy presentation this evening or this morning. Um, so I'll give a uh, brief overview of the core arguments of the book. Um, I have a few uh, slides to share as somebody who worked in the Pentagon. Um, I always have to have slides. It's actually part of the, the deal when you join the, uh, the Department of Defense. Um, and, uh, but uh, mostly just to set the stage for a uh, discussion following, which I'm very much looking forward to. Um, so let me make sure that, that we have our slide up. Um, so the, before, I, before I start, as, as I'm sure most of your audience hears when listening to Americans, uh, these are my views alone, not those of Columbia University Press or the Wilson Center or of the US government. Um, so the four core arguments, just to uh, give the bottom line up front, is that um, trying to define what the United States and China are competing over. Um, there's a broad consensus that the relationship is fundamentally competitive, but there are still arguments about what that competition is fundamentally about. And the book argues um, that uh, ultimately we're competing over uh, two related concepts, power and order power being the measurable attributes of a country, be it its economic strength, its military might, whatever that may be, um, and order being how a country translates the, uh, its power into shaping the rules of the road of the international environment, the uh, operating system that manages how states interact with one another and how they manage um, potentially conflicting uh, interests. Uh, the second argument is that the shifts in the regional balance of power that have been happening over recent years are threatening the foundations of the post-war liberal order uh, and arguing that the United States uh, must evolve its strategy uh, as a result of these changes and these challenges to the international system, uh, primarily calling for the United States to revitalize, to implement a strategy to revitalize a liberal order that's more conducive to the challenges and opportunities of the 21st century um, and that a key part of that would be to empower our allies and partners. Uh, the book started really as an examination of a strategy of empowering our allies, of getting our allies to do more. Um, but for me, it was an opportunity to ask questions of why do we want our allies to do more? Um, what is the objective that we have of these, of these pieces? We hear constantly, including through the Trump administration, that our allies need to do more. Uh, but I wanted to really think more deeply about the, the foundations of that. What is it that we're actually looking for allies to do? Why, um, how, how does that relate to uh, the dynamics of the Indo-Pacific and US-China competition? Um, so the first aspect of what I think is driving change in the regional order and driving uncertainties in the established in, uh, liberal order um, has been uncertainty about American power, uh, both its sustainability and its reliability. Uh, the book argues that uh, these, this uncertainty has been happening, going on since before the Trump administration, 
as a result of uh, economic challenges, budgetary pressures, uh, exacerbated by the 2008-2009 financial crisis, uh, which I think began the most recent round of concerns about American decline and China's rise, um, but also uh, the reliability of American power. Uh, the view that the United States is prone to strategic distraction and is reconsidering its role in the world. Um, and I see that as being those concerns being exacerbated by uh, US wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, which has a, uh, had a, I think, questionable strategic foundation. Um, but more recently, by the Trump administration's foreign policy and President Trump in particular and his views on the role of alliances and his roles on, and his views on international laws and institutions, uh, as well as the US response to the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, both in terms of its uh, inability to effectively address the pandemic domestically, um, but also American unwillingness to serve as its traditional role as an international leader and agenda setter in driving an international response to the pandemic. Um, all of which I think are exacerbating concerns and questions about um, the sustainability and reliability of American power, which has implications for the uh, long-term health and success of a liberal order. Um, but the other piece of this is China uh, and China's rise. And one of the arguments that the, books, that the book makes that I'll try to touch on here uh, is what China is trying to actually accomplish, that there's a sense of China's rise being a challenge for the United States and that certainly speaks to the power aspect of U.S.-China competition, but less to the order aspect. And to me, the question of what China, China's orientation towards international order is much less clear. And so the book tries to make an argument about what China's approach is, that China seeks a, uh, what they refer to as a great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, um, in which China is powerful at home, uh, dominant regionally and respected internationally, in which any question of geopolitical significance has to run through Beijing. Um, that in terms of our competition, it's a country, it's a competitor, unlike anything the United States has seen before, uh, in that its foreign policy is domestically motivated, um, and in that its approach to international relations is shaped by uh, the his unique history and ideology of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, but ultimately, the book argues that China's approach towards international relations is not explicitly revolutionary or um, or explicitly hostile, but rather um, what it describes as exceptionalist uh, towards international order, um, in that it is perfectly fine with established laws, norms, and institutions, uh, but rather is trying to carve out exceptions for itself when it finds those that order to be counter to what to the interests and prerogatives of the Chinese Communist Party. And to me, a great example of that is. Um, the freedom of, principle of freedom of navigation as codified in the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, where uh, Chinese military ships are able to sail uh, close to uh, features controlled by the United States, by Japan, by several other countries around the world with no problem because it's protected in international law. Um, yet when other countries sail next to Chinese claimed features in the South China Sea and East China Sea especially, uh, Chinese officials object to that. Um, and in my experience as, a, as an academic, when I've engaged with Chinese scholars, Chinese officials about it, they will often um, claim that they're very supportive of the principle of freedom of navigation. You claim that China is a special case, that these islands are especially sensitive, so we need to carve out exceptions um, for those specific islands. And you see that in other places in terms of China's status in the World Bank as uh, a developing nation, even though it's the world's second largest economy, uh, and in multiple other places where China's 
really is just seeking to carve out an exception for itself rather than trying to overthrow the international system wholesale. Um, yet by carving out su such exceptions, um, my argument is that it fundamentally weakens the some fundamental precepts of a liberal order, one being uh, the uh, uh, implicit assumption of sovereign equality of nations, that China's approach to international policy is much more hierarchical, uh, at least uh, implicitly, if not explicitly. Um, so the vision that I see for China in terms of its approach to, to the international system, as I mentioned before, is China, they want to see China at the center of an increasingly uh, but informal hierarchical system. Um, the term that Chinese diplomats will often use is hubutong, uh, or uh, harmony, not uniformity, uh, which the book uh, explains as a way of uh, the Chinese, Chinese uh, officials to describe a situation in which China does not need to adjust to the world, but rather it's the world that needs to be in harmony with China as it rises. Um, and the ultimate impact of this in terms of international order would be to weaken or establish a more compliant international system of laws and institutions, uh, and of course, circum to circumscribe the role of the United States in the Indo-Pacific. Um, so the, the, the book then uh, takes on the view of US allies and partners. What does this dynamic look like for allies and partners who have critical economic relations with China, critical security relations with the United States, I'd say ideological sympathies with the United States for the most part, they like the international liberal order. They want to see it sustained and survive. Um, yet they also see China is a critical uh, power in the region that they may not like, they may not trust, but it is a power that they need to um, manage and a relationship they need to, that they need to adjust to. And so the view that the book describes is that allies and partners, very broadly speaking, see China as economically uh, important, but not supported in a geopolitical sense. Whereas many allies and partners see the United States generally positively, although polls suggest that um, it's not, they don't see President Trump positively, that has yet to translate into a generally negative view of the United States itself. Um, and that broadly speaking, the, the region continues to look to the United States for leadership. They want to see the United States lead. Um, and uh, many countries, they, although many of them will like to see the United States being more explicit about embracing competition, um, or at least acknowledging the competitive aspects of the relationship and pursuing that more clearly. Um, there is also deep concern that, that com those competitive dynamics will pressure an ally and partner into uh, choosing one side or another, which actually turns into more often than not rejecting one side in favor of the other, um, which because the relations with both countries are important, allies and partners would generally prefer to avoid. And so the book describes what, it, what, I, what I see as coming is um, what I describe as the emerging heterarchy, uh, which is a overlaying um, a series of hierarchical competitive dynamics in which the United States and China are competing across multiple dimensions of, Amer of national power, not just military, but trade, security mechanisms, technology standards, infrastructure, et cetera. And that allies and partners will be looking in each category, each section of national power, um, and to start determining which um, ecosystem, if you will, is better for their interests. Um, and that some allies and partners may start to actually try to pick and choose where they want to be uh, aligned with the United States, say in security mechanisms and technology standards, but may determine that infrastructure, they get a better deal from the Chinese. Uh, all of this to say that the United States is facing a much more complex competitive dynamic than what we experienced during the Cold War and that our strategy needs to adjust 
for this. As, as you'll see here uh, in several of these be technology standards or trade communities, uh, the United States alternative to what China is proposing is still very unclear. And in terms of the US BDI and Build Act um, is much smaller and more, and more limited than what China is offering. So to me, that's a strategic shortfall that the United States is going to need to address if we're going to um, effectively compete with the China across all elements of national power. Um, and so for our allies and partners, it, just, it turns into what I describe as complex hedging strategies, um, in which hedging is generally seen as a strategy in which a country may adopt one or two aspects of, of um, be it bandwagoning or balancing um, uh, against the United States or against China. Whereas uh, the book argues that most of these countries, most of the allies and partners in the Indo-Pacific are actually pursuing a mix of all of those at, at the same time um, due to the tremendous uncertainty that they're facing. So in terms of well, what a US strategy would look like, um, the objectives that the, the book lays out would be to counteract challenges to the regional balance of power, uh, to oppose China's exceptionalist objectives and to sustain liberal principles within the regional order. Um, and it describes several initiatives uh, to achieve this in terms of revitalizing a 21st century liberal order. Uh, that would be investing in our dipl diplomacy, um, doing more to support, strengthen, and um, effectiveness of international laws and norms while working with allies and partners to establish new norms for new technologies, new domains, um, evolving international institutions and reforming them to make them more effective. Um, second, to empower our allies and partners and a key piece of this, um, and I'll, I can get into this more in the Q&A, is to reconsider our alliances, especially not only as fundamentally military in nature, but rather as a platform for comprehensive uh, cooperation and collaboration across all elements of national power. Um, and that means working with each country individually in terms of enhancing their military capabilities, but also cooperating on trade, infrastructure, diplomacy, establishing and reforming institutions and norms um, across every element of national power, developing compelling alternatives to what the Chinese are proposing and alternatives that are more compatible with established liberal norms. Um, three, to rebuild American geopolitical strength in terms of investing of the roots of American power, not only in our military, but in our diplomacy, education, infrastructure, technology, all of which I think makes the United States more reliable in the long run. And finally, as I mentioned before, to reconceive competition with China, not only as military, uh, not only as competition for competition's sake, um, but rather as a goal towards, as a, as a means towards an end of sustaining a liberal order uh, in, in the Indo-Pacific especially. Um, I, the book also has a country by country analysis um, where it goes through our allies and partners in the Indo-Pacific, including Australia. Um, and we can get into the specifics of those, um, but probably it, it uh, tracks with what I described uh, before in terms of a broad consensus, broad cooperation and collaboration across all elements of national power, uh, promoting um, political and economic liberalism, strengthening uh, Australia's military capabilities, strengthening Australia's ability to contribute to the health and success of the international order and cooperating to help other allies and partners as well. Um, and we can get into the specifics of that as, you're, as uh, we go into the discussion. Uh, but the final points I'll, I'll make here uh, in conclusion um, is that as we're thinking about where the United States goes from here is that we're not going to be able to return to the way things were. Even after we get past 
uh, the coronavirus, even after the Trump administration, be that next year in 2025, um, that the world has changed significantly and we're gonna have to change with it. We need to address the region for what it is, uh, but I still firmly believe that the United States is best positioned uh, to lead, both in terms of power and in terms of credibility. Uh, the book describes alternative paths um, that may happen if we don't um, empower allies and partners and try to sustain these, uh, the liberal order uh, in terms of what the region may look like and what American uh, power may look like. Um, but broadly speaking, I adopt the, um, the words uh, that we hear a lot in Silicon Valley, um, that the world is changing and we need to adapt to it, adapt or die. I think is a, the, the short way of talking about it, that um, we've changed our strategies in the past as the world changes and we need to continue to do that if we're gonna remain effective and relevant uh, to the geopolitical dynamics of the region. And uh, so that's the short version. I'll, I'll stop there. Thank you so much. And I look forward uh, to our discussion. Thanks. Thanks very much, Abe. Sorry, I was just uh, unmuting there. Thanks very much, Abe, for that um, teaser, really, of your your book, which um, I'll say, along with the uh, with the imperative adapt or die. I think the other one for this webinar is buy the book. Um, it's definitely worth your time. It's definitely worth a read. And I think um, whether or not you are a, a U.S. scholar or a policymaker or a regional um, scholar or policymaker or interested party. Um, Abe has teased out a framework for thinking about 21st century regional challenges and collective regional approaches, which uh, in which there is really a vantage point for all of us to latch onto and think about what our own national contributions may be, could be, whether or not Abe's strategy works for different countries and parts of the region and so forth. There's a lot there to think about. And look, that's where I wanna begin, I think, um, for, for this conversation, Abe. And, and Jane, I'll bring you in in just a moment. But Abe, to, to sort of underscore, um, you know, what, what I think is, is the key argument in the book you've just mentioned here is about the, the role, the emerging and changing role of US allies um, and also partners in the Indo-Pacific to be more than just military relationships, but to become, you know, in my terms, sort of comprehensive um, regional order enhancers. Um, and I think that, um, the three of us would probably agree that this is something which um, has already started to a certain extent. I think the Obama administration um, very much championed the role of, of allies and partners like Australia, Japan, India, others in the region, um, stressing not just their military contributions to regional security, but also their geoeconomic contributions, uh, their role in trade and multilateral fora, their role in regional institutions, um, a whole range of human rights issues, women's empowerment, environmental protection, et cetera. These alliances and their agendas are extremely rich. Um, and, and Jane, in a moment, I might get you to speak a bit about the foreign policy white paper, Australia's foreign policy white paper, which again, is an extremely rich agenda uh, for regional organization and regional policy. Um, Abe, my, my, my question for you, is how have you seen over the last few years the developments of um, or the development towards this 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 uh, this um, collective strategy? Um, are you encouraged by, for instance, the way that um, Australia and Japan have picked up the mantle of the TPP and 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 turned it into something which, although it doesn't include the United States, um, continues the progress? towards regional economic integration and high standards. 
Um, are you encouraged by other efforts that you've seen whereby regional allies and partners have worked together, let's say, um, in the defense realm to strengthen um, trilateral and bilateral partnerships in the Indian Ocean, in Southeast Asia? Do you see this as, as, as already achieving some of the um, emerging and, uh, ends of, the, of that your strategy um, uh, or that your sense of, of US strategy needs to achieve? I, I do. I, there's some, I think, very encouraging dynamics. And I think it, it speaks to that there's a bit of a, a gravitational piece uh, to this approach that um, uh, that there's a, in terms of the CPTPP um, and um, Japan's leadership, Australia's leadership in pushing forward um, economic liberalism uh, throughout the region through that mechanism. Um, some of the um, enhanced, uh, what, we, what we call minilateral uh, cooperation, be it uh, economic, the recent mechanism that was announced about uh, supply chain security, um, I think all speaks to a few things. I, th I think it speaks to the need for um, countries to work together, like-minded nations to work together um, on liberal principles, um, pushing back against some of uh, the more concerning aspects of uh, China's uh, foreign policy and national security strategy, um, and seeing that we all are basically in this together. Um, the other aspect of it, though, that I think is a bit disconcerting is what that cooperation suggests um, in that I see, especially with the CPTPP um, and the, uh, the security, uh, the supply chain security mechanism has been a lack of American leadership, that the United States is not there, that the region in some ways is moving on without us. Um, and so um, in the book, I talk about how states, uh, how allies and partners are uh, working more together, a, a version of external balancing that doesn't include the United States. Um, and that to me is uh, both uh, a signal that um, the United States needs to do more, um, but also it shows to me that our allies and partners are in the right place, that um, I think we can do more, we can accomplish more with American leadership um, in terms of raising the bar in terms of quality, um, in terms of um, expanding the breadth of these initiatives. Um, but it also shows that countries like Australia, like Japan and others um, are pushing in the right direction, that it's not going to take a heavy lift to um, pursue a lot of these strategies, especially outside of the military realm, uh, where allies and partners are already going in a, in a very similar direction. It reminds me there, Abe, of a, a line by a former Australian prime minister, which is um, always back self-interest, at least you know it's trying. And I think there, uh, you know, a lot of what comes through in your book is about enabling allies and partners in the region to, to help themselves, not in an entirely self-help way to use the international relations jargon, whereby they're operating uh, from, you know, from the lowest common denominator of their own self-interest and security, but whereby the United States can play a greater role as the visible hand in supporting and shaping and sculpting those efforts that are in the interest both of greater strategic depth and autonomy and sovereignty of those countries in their interest, but also in service of the regional order. Um, Jane, I might turn over to you um, at this point, um, because I think it would be fair to say that Australia also sees itself as having a role of enabling and assisting regional countries, particularly in Southeast Asia and the Pacific, to help um, 
themselves achieve their own national resilience, their own national development and economic objectives, their own security and autonomy. Uh, and the foreign policy white paper from 2017, I think still really sets the framework for Australian thinking on that. And it's really not dissimilar from the framework that Abe teases out. Could you give us a, a few comments on that? Sure, actually I was going to refer back to 2017 and then look at some things Abe has said and written and then do a little refresh on Australia's Indo-Pacific outlook in particular. Um, so the 2017 was a long time ago and I remember the launch of the foreign policy white paper, which I um, stress, although it has foreign policy in the title, is a whole of government doc document launched by the Prime Minister. Um, the chapter three is on the Indo-Pacific. It was a seminal chapter in my view. It was about the nature of strategic competition that we were observing and facing. It was very much about the US and China, and it, but it was also about our partnerships. And those partnerships, I was just reviewing that chapter and the countries mentioned, and this remains absolutely prescient, uh, Japan, Indonesia, India, uh, there are some others, the ROK, Thailand, Vietnam, and the Southeast Asian nations, particularly the ASEAN architecture. That chapter talked about fault lines, and this was quite a controversial thing to do in a public policy document. And those fault lines were described as safeguarding maritime security. Our security is very much maritime. The maritime domain with air assistance and army assistance, of course, is dominant in our part of the world. The issues that were described were in the South China Sea, in the East China Sea, in the Taiwan Strait, and then there were some other um, relationships discussed. Um, one was uh, how we saw the Indian Ocean region, how we saw India-Pakistan and India-China uh, competition. So it, it was very prescient. And then of course, chapter seven was on what the Americans call Oceania, which we call the, the Pacific or the Southwest Pacific, our immediate neighbourhood. And many of the listeners will understand and have heard since the Prime Minister's launch of or Pacific Step Up has been going for many years, but the big budget items were announced around the time of APEC in 2018. But uh, that, was, that was then, I just was interested in picking up on some really important points made by Abe in, in his book. Um, really, it's about the nature of power. The nature of power is changing in our world and very rapidly, even in a few years. We are safeguarding the liberal fundamentals that the US and allies set up after the Second World War. We make no bones about that. We are safeguarding and revitalizing the fundamentals of the liberal order. And there's a great description, uh, definition of the liberal order in Abe's book, by the way. Um, we are looking at the US hub and spoke model of alliances set up during and after the Second World War and how that's evolving into a web of alliances, really. When we talk about allies and partners, we have to talk about not how we go about engaging with them and empowering them, but why? If we don't understand why we're not empower, seeking to empower and engage them, then we can't, we can't explain that to them. 
So we have to really dig deep into understanding why ourselves and why therefore they, it is in their interests to continue in this very long quest to build a, a, a global and particularly a regional order. Uh, values are at the heart of that discussion. Now on the Indo-Pacific more specifically, um, the issue of deterrence and assurance, it, it underlines the, our own alliance with the United States. People often focus on deterrence. I'm here working with the Indo-Pacific Command and all the component commands that are headquartered here. And believe me, it's a ver if, if only you could all see the inside, it is very reassuring to see the immense power, the immense discipline and the brilliant thinking behind the um, projection of US power across this area of responsibility, which as everybody knows, goes from Hollywood to Bollywood, Hollywood and Hollywood to Bollywood, uh, penguins to polar bears, as Harry Harris used to say so engagingly. But the issue of assurance to allies, this is the a deep part of deterrence. Assurance to allies is a very significant plank of deterrence. Um, and how do you deal with countries that may be perceiving that they have an unequal relationship in the alliance, either the formal alliance arrangement or the partnership that the US, Australia and other uh, like-minded countries are proposing. Um, and secondly, instead of hub and spoke, how do you link the, um, the allies and partners in the region? We've done that, I think, through 30 years of, of um, institution building and norm building through the ASEAN meetings. We've begun it in the Indian Ocean through the Indian Ocean Rim Association and IONS and several other things. Um, but basically, we've got a lot more work to do. And I think uh, the what we're looking at now with Australia's Indo-Pacific outlook is how we give effect to it. So we've got to really operationalise it. We've got to we've got to implement it. Um, a really great organising idea in Abe's book is heterarchy how you devise mechanisms which are flexible and nimble so that they can organise and reorganise around different problem sets with different sets of partners. This to me is a fundamental aspect of implementation of what we all agree are the values and systems we want to project and revitalise. Uh, some call that a functional sphere of influence. So I just leave that thought there. Um, one interesting point, I mean, there's great descriptions of the nature of the Indo-Pacific region. Uh, when you look at that in the, con in the global context, there's more that is common among our very diverse set of countries in our neighbourhood, but there's more in common, uh, I would argue, than not in common. Abe has commented on the idea that, in fact, uh, a lot of the regional partners actually still do value the US and what the US brings to the world and to this region. I, th there's something else as well, which is very practical and important, and that is that the advanced technology capability among our regional partners, and I would, I would caveat this because I think Oceania is a very different uh, situation. But if you look to our immediate north and west, um, up through Southeast Asia, Northeast Asia and West Asia, we have countries, all of whom have uh, 
quite a high degree of advanced technological capability. And we've got to do two things with that. One, we've got to actually shift the agenda towards the threats of the future, including threats to sovereignty by cyber intrusion, um, the, the role of art artificial intelligence, both in warfare and other, other industries. And we've got to harness that and be confident that in fact, we have a lot of regional partners who are capable of doing that. We've got to remind people that it was the US and I'd argue also Japan and to a degree, the Republic of Korea, which developed that technology. Japan is now one of the world's leading strategic owners of technology and US invented most of it after the Second World War, the platforms on which this was built. And we've got to remind people, this is what the gift has been of the liberal order. Um, just to quickly update, I'd say um, since 2017, have a look at some important things. I guess the speeches of our leadership is important. The Prime Minister's speech to the UN General Assembly last week was really inspiring. Of course, it talked about COVID, I remember pandemic being on that list of non-traditional security threats for years and years. And finally, <laughs> you know, 30 years into my career, I really understand what that means. Um, but he talks about the UN law of the sea, the threats in cyberspace and so on, and how much, how important it is for, for the UN body as a whole to seriously and effectively grapple with the deleterious effects of this whilst understanding the central principle of maintaining sovereign power. Just more specifically on the foreign policy outlook and I'd argue the defence outlook, um, I'll leave it to, to Ash in particular to talk about the defence strategic update recently um, launched by the Australian Government. Again, the Prime Minister's speech and the, the Defence Minister's speech is a really brilliant they, they mention all of these things. Uh, there's a great consistency of the message, regardless of the topic at hand. Um, on, um, on broad foreign policy, one thing I want to mention is that Foreign Minister Payne and the Prime Minister and others have, whilst we're very clear-eyed about the nature of US-China competition, we don't want a false binary to set in and completely dominate regional discussions about this because we believe that regional countries have their own agency. And this is really what Abe's book is, is talking about. Um, so, you know, our implementation phase of the broad ideas set out in 2017 are well underway. I won't go into the detail. But again, um, Foreign Minister Payne again mentioned these countries, Japan, Indonesia, India, South Korea and Vietnam. They are the countries we're working with uh, very specifically, partly because we've just had uh, various things, including Vietnam's very effective chairmanship of ASEAN and last year Thailand's effective chairmanship of ASEAN. Secondly, we want a constructive relationship with China. We have never wavered from this. We are looking for a constructive relationship and we are working with China on many things where it is in our mutual interests and where it doesn't uh, deny Australia's fundamental liberal values and principles. 
Thirdly, we want to step up continuously in the Southwest Pacific um, for all of the, the above reasons. Cybersecurity, infrastructure, these are all very urgent um, needs for the region and for our work on that. Uh, finally, we want to encourage, and we don't have to do this, I live here in Honolulu and see it every day, US deep engagement in the region's economic and security affairs. So, um, Prime Minister, uh, sorry, Foreign Minister Payne also spoke <coughs> about Racina last, at Racina Dialogue in India last year. <coughs> Excuse me. And recently, there have been a, um, the, the evolution of some um, ambitions we laid out three years ago, one of which is the Quad with Japan, the US, India, and Australia. That it's a senior officials process. It's been, uh, these things take many years and a lot under the radar, and this is developing into a very uh, practical, we're a practical nation, a practical way to give, uh, to give effect to our values and our ambitions for the region. And I'll just quickly mention, again, very similar list. What are the things that we discussed at the Quads officials meeting last week? Maritime security, quality infrastructure development, and investment, cyber, cyber security, and the long-standing issues of counter-terrorism, which haven't gone away, and humanitarian assistance and disaster relief. So that's our shock, that's our list, and it hasn't changed, uh, but the way we're implementing it has, and we've got to make sure that we can work nimbly to make to ensure that what we've thought about over the years is still relevant and that we can give effect to it. I'll leave it at that. Thanks so much, Jane, for those really comprehensive comments. And it's great to get that perspective from multiple senior officials and leadership speeches since 2017. Um, I've got a few questions coming in the chat. Um, I'm gonna to turn to those in just a moment, but before I do, and, and to link, uh, Jane, your comments now with, with back to um, some of the points um, Abe raises in the book, um, I want to come back to two points. One is, you know, your comment just towards the end there about the fact that Australia wants a constructive relationship with China. Um, and Abe, in your book, I think you very, um, um, in a very nuanced way, you make the case that the United States also wants a constructive relationship with China, although not one in which it compromises on, let's say, a hierarchy of interests. For example, it's fair and it's critical for the United States and China to work together on climate change, but not if this becomes a quid pro quo for capitulation in other areas of, let's say, strategic interest. You also make the point that this is not unusual, and this is, in fact, the default setting of hedging countries across the Indo-Pacific. Um, and, and on top of that, you also, I think, again, with a lot of, with a lot of sort of regional understanding, make the point uh, the countries in the Indo-Pacific, or at least many countries in the Indo-Pacific, not all, are ambivalent about the term liberal regional order. They care about the regional order. And instead, in order to um, uh, galvanize collective action amongst them, the best approach is to focus not on the, the liberalness of the order, but on the principles and the tangible benefits that those principles bring to regional countries, which is something that a much larger subset of countries, including liberal ones, can agree on. I see that cluster of issues about a constructive relationship with China, about hedging, about the liberalness or the principled nature of the order as being 
um, really a critical um, nexus for US policy, um, whoever the, whichever administration takes the White House at the end of this year. Uh, Abe, could you just give a little bit more on your thinking of those issues and in particular on what the approach is for the United States to you know, calibrate its, its strategic policy settings where you have these different preferences, where those different preferences exist to different degrees across countries in the Indo-Pacific. What, what is the way that you bring all of that together? I know it's a big question. Sure, and it's, um, I appreciate that. And, uh, Ambassador Hardy, thank you so much. Just a, a very rich uh, uh, reaction and discussion on uh, Australia's approach and how, uh, how your country's approach has evolved over the last several years. Very much appreciated that. Um, in terms of uh, calibrating US, a U.S. approach to this, uh, one of the ways the book to, um, handles this um, is by first developing a strategic framework for how the United States should think about and approach these issues. Um, as a global power, as a country with regional interests across the Indo-Pacific, um, there needs to be some threads that run continuously through. There needs to be some continuity from what the United States is, drive, is doing in the region. Um, yet at the same time, we need to recognize that countries have their own particular histories and ideologies and interests, and that the U.S. strategy needs to be calibrated to speak to uh, those interests and those concerns. So the book had, begins with a strategic framework, but um, the last almost half of the book is really a country-by-country -country analysis of what this framework means for particular countries across the region, including uh, allies and partners. Um, and to give you an idea of um, how, this, how this works, there's some countries, um, and I'd, I'd speak to, uh, like, I point to like South Korea, for example, where coming in and saying, you need to help us compete with China is not gonna get you anywhere. That, there's, that just raises allergies, even though um, there are concerns, of course, in Seoul about China, uh, that many of them would share with us, um, there are deep concerns about what that would mean for uh, Seoul to pursue an explicitly uh, competitive approach to China. Um, yet talking about shared principles, shared interests in terms of freedom of navigation, uh, pieces like that um, are much easier to talk about. Um, and that the United States, part of the, one of the book's recommendations is to understand those, um, those approaches and to um, work with them rather than trying to counteract them. Um, another good example of this is um, with India. Um, I, can't, I can't even begin to count how many times I've been in, um, as, an, as an academic, how many times I've been in meetings with Indi Indian scholars um, in which a US official, or I, I should say a US scholar, former official, um, would say, when's it gonna be the time where you, you know, get on our side um, and you know, join up with us and push back against the Chinese? And every time it just, it, my, my heart just sinks a little bit. Um, is, because one of the arguments of the book is that India is going to be on India's side. And there's a fundamental belief amongst many uh, in India that India needs to maintain an independent approach uh, to not align with China or the United States. Um, but the argument from the book is that that's good for, for American interests, for a liberal order. If, if India can remain uh, independent and it, through that independence, support liberal institutions, liberal ideas in terms of robust international laws and norms, um, robust uh, institutions, then that's a net benefit for the United States, even if they're not signing on the dotted line for whatever mechanism we ha may have in mind. And you know, I've participated in a few academic versions of the Quad, 
in which American, Australia, Indian, and Japanese scholars get together and talk about, about international issues. Um, and I find that we have to sort of um, clear our throats. And I think it's not only for the Indian participants, but for some of the others as well to say, we're not aligning together to push back against the Chinese, that this is not an anti-China initiative. Um, and that once we get past that, we talk a lot about things that we can do that China probably wouldn't like very much. Um, but it's sort of framing things in a way that's more uh, acceptable, more understanding for, for those countries that I think we'd get a lot further than um, what we've seen, I think, in recent years where we spend, the United States spends a lot of time criticizing our allies uh, and then um, wondering why they're not going to jump on board when we snap our fingers and say, you need to help us out with China. Um, but rather it's about understanding where our allies and partners are coming from uh, and framing and uh, um, um, I'd say crafting a strategy that's um, both effective, but also I think more palatable uh, for countries with very complex uh, calculations that they have to make. And part of the purpose of the book for American audiences is to describe the complexities of those calculations and what it means for uh, the United States and our efforts to get our allies and partners to do more. I fully agree, Abe. And then I would add there, in fact, I think that there's a, again, a commonality in in your framework with Australia's approach, most recently uh, exhibited in the Defence Strategic Update document, um, whereby Australia also is increasingly defining our interests, our national interests, um, in terms of regional order and in terms of helping regional countries secure and safeguard their own proximate interests in sovereignty, in autonomy, in the rights they have in their maritime jurisdictions, et cetera. And then in fact, it's, it's that, um, alignment between Australia and the United States as both defining our own interests in regional order terms that is, uh, and I would add Japan as well into that, that is part of the reason, and I'm putting words in your mouth here, but it's part of the reason why you might have suggested that Australia, the Australia-Japan-US trilateral is in many ways um, at, at the heart of, um, of, of uh, alliance and partner networking and alliance and partner strategy in the region because of the way that we define those interests. Uh, I won't use the term altruistic, I think it's still self-interested, but we define those interests regionally. Um, I'm going to be very rude here and not let you comment and turn instead to a question we have. I even throw it back to you and you can tell me why I'm wrong then. Um, a question from um, a great Australian Vietnamese researcher, Hong Le Tru, a great friend down at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, and she's asked the following question. Um, you've highlighted challenges about US, uh, to US leadership, including the fact that it cannot lead alone going ahead. You've also said that the US is still in the best position to lead. So can you speak a little bit more to what particular aspects the US can still lead on uh, in the future? Abe, over to you. And it's a, it's a terrific question. Um, and um, I, I, one of the reasons, and I, I think this is an uh, answer to, um, to the question, but also a bit of a, a reaction to, to your last comments, Ashley, is that from, our pers from the book, the perspective of the book, from my perspective, that um, there needs to be an order aspect to US strategy and a power aspect to US strategy, that it's not enough to just shift the talking points around a bit, but there needs to be uh, tactile, physical changes in terms of U.S. investments and U.S. approach to the region um, that shows that it's not just language, that there's a, a fundamental commitment to the region. I think the, the 
Obama administration's rebalance was part of that. Um, I think we've seen some of that continue into the Trump administration. Um, so one of the reasons I think the United States can, uh, is poised to lead, is still poised to lead, is because we have the necessary power um, that, that's really the only country that can credibly um, check Chinese power, balance against Chinese power um, by itself. Um, and that uh, we, I, see the, I see our allies and partners really as strategic assets in efforts to push back against um, some of the more um, problematic aspects of Chinese uh, foreign policy, national security strategy. Um, and so to me, that means pushing back, especially, um, I think the United States has the ability potentially to push back and lead on a wide variety of different areas. Um, but it also requires the United States to get things right at home um, in terms of um, recalibrating our investments, in terms of making sure that the United States is living up to its principles that it espouses internationally. Um, and and I, I've written about how um, there, the American domestic policy affects the credibility of American power overseas um, and that we can be more effective as leaders um, in the international realm if we're doing the right things at home as well. Uh, and that these things are interrelated with one another, um, especially in the Indo-Pacific um, and especially in an age where um, there's really no such thing as domestic issues anymore, where the, the line between domestic and international issues is increasingly blurred. Um, and that will, I think, put us in an even stronger position to lead on more normative aspects of international order. Um, and to give, a, to give an example of this, um, uh, Ambassador Hardy, in, in her comments, uh, talked a lot about uh, Australia's efforts in the Pacific Islands um, what we and in Southeast Asia. Um, and one of the arguments of the books is that, one of the arguments of the book is that uh, US efforts to strengthen, to work with allies and partners to strengthen governance um, and to counter corruption in a lot of these issues, in a lot of these places it will be helpful, not only in a normative sense, um, that these are good things to do, but also I think would be very effective in countering Chinese efforts to expand their influence uh, in the belief that in a transparent uh, rule of law um, environment uh, in which US and Chinese um, options are able to compete with one another openly and fairly, we're going to succeed more often than not uh, because the Western offers, Western deals um, uh, systems based on liberal principles, I think is just a better deal than what the Chinese may be offering. Um, and so by supporting efforts of governance, um, I think that would help uh, not only in a normative sense, but also in a, in a power sense. So to me, um, to, to answer these questions, it needs to have a, both a, an aspect of understanding the importance of liberal order and liberal principles uh, as an aspect of our leadership, um, but also there needs to be a fundamental power basis of, their, uh, of that effort um, so that it has both credibility um, for our allies and our, and our adversaries alike that we're here and that we're not gonna be going away anytime soon. Abe, as a follow-up to that, and Jane, I'd like to bring you on this um, perhaps first and then turn over to, to Abe. Um, conscious of time, we've got five minutes left. Abe, your focus um, in your answer just then touches on a question that Hunter Marston from uh, the ANU has also asked, which is about the, the problems of, of focusing on liberal values when it comes to certain countries in Southeast Asia. And he's asked specifically about cooperation with illiberal allies such as the Philippines, Thailand, and partners like Vietnam. 
obviously Thailand also being uh, Thailand and the Philippines also being U.S. treaty allies. Is 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 this something, Jane, turning to you first, not to comment on U.S. policy, um, but to comment on sort of Australia's pragmatic approach to dealing with regional countries um, with whom we share interest in international order values, even if our own um, liberal domestic values don't align. Could you comment a little bit about managing that um, that tension uh, before, Abe, I turn over to you to respond as well, please? Sure. Um, yes, this is always the task of, of deep diplomacy over many decades. It's a fundamental task. And I believe we've got and helped build some regional structures which help in this. I mentioned ASEAN and I mentioned the Pacific Island Forum and there are others that we've built over 20 or, uh, sorry, even longer than that. I remember APEC began in 1989. Um, the key is to understand the interests of those countries. Uh, when we talk about liberal or illiberal, in a way, uh, we're talking about values, of course, but often we're talking about how governments are organised and what their local laws are. and. There is, there's always a, there is always a logic to the way a country develops, even politically. Um, and we've got to engage for many years to get deep inside the, those mindsets and those thoughts. We've also got to really understand why certain items have come right up to the top of their own agenda for safeguarding their own sovereignty. So if they say, you know, freedom of navigation is important to safeguard their trade as they're trying to develop economically and trade their way up in the, up in the world economic system, let's focus on that. You know, let's focus on what it is they think needs to happen, the threshold items uh, that need to be preserved or enhanced or safeguarded. So function, I mentioned functional kind of interest groups is, I think, a very important mechanism for doing that. Uh, we, we've enshrined principles in all of our foreign policy and trade policy and defence policy settings over many decades. And I'm old enough to have remembered when the multilateral approach to trade was king and everything had to <laughs> have within it um, the principles enshrined under the international trading system. Well, we still do that for ourselves and we won't do bilaterals unless they accord with our own ideas for promoting those universal values on open economic systems. Um, but we, we find ways around it. Um, TPP was mentioned. I won't go into that. I remember when that was developing and it developed quickly. And the other regional organisation for trade is called RCEP, which has recently been promulgated. Um, and Australia was always a part of both. Uh, again, we, we're incredibly pragmatic about the way we go about things. When we negotiate our treaties, that's when, of course, we have our own bottom line, and we won't we won't enact or 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 agree to something which um, belies the international liberal order that we aspire to uh, uphold and refresh. So I think functional approaches are very important. Thanks, Jane. Abe, 
Yeah, um, thanks. I, I appreciate it. Um, it's, a, it's a very tricky issue, and it's been a tricky aspect of American foreign policy since there has been American foreign policy. Uh, and I don't think we're going to come to uh, any um, uh, striking solutions to the, to the issue here. Uh, just uh, three points that I'd make in, in reaction to it. First is that illiberal states can support liberal principles internationally. Um, in that, for example, um, countries like Vietnam, uh, which is not liberal domestically, uh, can still be supportive of principles of freedom of navigation, um, of the peaceful resolution of disputes, of uh, powerful and robust international laws and norms uh, and institutions. Um, so these are not necessarily mutually incompatible ideas. Um, the other piece is that I think engaging with the liberal states need not be binary uh, in that it's, I don't think it needs to be a situation in which if a country has any illiberal aspects to its domestic governance, then we uh, cut them off and shut them out. Um, but rather, I think there can be some, um, some um, degree of subtlety and, and, uh, and some degree of, um, of customization in these relationships. Um, that in, in my experience, it's been fine to be fairly open about our objections to aspects of their governance model while still engaging with these countries pragmatically. Um, not to say that there are some lines that we shouldn't tolerate, such as genocide um, and other human rights violations, uh, but it is possible, I think, to balance interests and values uh, in our engagements with these countries. Um, the last piece, I'd, I'd, the third point I'd, I mentioned on this is that when I talk with um, uh, scholars who advocate for cutting off countries that have illiberal records, it, it's under the assumption of, I found that um, they don't really have any other options, that then they're just sort of shunned from the international community. Whereas what we've seen is that when the United States and uh, other Western countries don't engage with these countries, then um, they go to Russia, they go to China, um, and we end up losing out. We end up actually losing our own influence. So I do think that we need to figure out what a ground floor would be um, and figure out how we balance our interests and values. Um, my, my old um, book editing partner, Ashley Tellis, recently had a very good piece, I thought a very interesting piece on um, how India's uh, more, uh, some of the more liberal policies that India has been putting forward recently may um, challenge US-India collaboration. Um, and to me, I think that highlights the, uh, the challenges that we see in terms of engaging with countries that we may not agree with. But um, the other piece of it that a lot of my American um, colleagues, a lot of my American friends don't often like to talk about is that, you know, a lot of our friends have objections to American policies and American domestic governments. Be, uh, for example, um, the, the death penalty which is not nearly as popular in a lot of liberal countries as it, as it is supported in the United States. Um, and so I think it's important to have a little bit of perspective um, and to make sure that we are able as we move forward to uh, find a way to balance our interests and values and to pursue this to a degree that is consistent with our values, but at the same time allows us to engage with countries in a way that advances our interests. Thanks so much, Abe. Look, so much more there we could discuss. I wanted to come to you to talk about questions about um, the personnel or lack thereof in parts of the US government, which was a question by Gordon Flake. I also wanted to come to you to talk about questions of US capacity, um, uh, as well as elite and public willingness to really resource the strategies um, that you've outlined in the book 
um, which I think we can all agree are ambitious. Um, and and uh, again, um, we've run out of time. Uh, look, I'd like to acknowledge those as well as the other questions that are still coming into the chat. It's a sign of a great webinar where you're already five minutes over time and the questions are still coming. Um, but look, unfortunately, we'll have to draw a line under it there. Um, can I thank you both again for joining us at the US Study Center today? It's been a fantastic roundtable. It's really just begun this conversation. Abe, Jane, I'd hope that there are ways we can engage with you both in this new format over the coming um, weeks and months. And again, I'd encourage everyone in the audience um, out there to get a copy of Abe's book.